we and everyone else misread the economy. The figures we worked off of in January were the consensus figures of most of the uh, most of the blue chip indexes out there. And welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway in New York City. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt back in beautiful Seattle. It is Monday, July 6, and you just heard Vice President Joe Biden speaking on ABC's This Week at the Top. Today, listeners, you, Laura, me, Hannah, we are going to get schooled. Yes, the kids say we are going to drop some knowledge on you. We're going to tell you why your kid's teacher perhaps needs some more school. And maybe some more money. Um, All that, but not before we deliver that planet money indicator. It is 33. That's the average number of hours people are working right now in the United States each week. It comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's a little short of that 40-hour week we like to talk about. This number comes from the BLS's latest employment report or unemployment report. And that 33 hours a week, this is crazy to me. It's the lowest it has ever been. The BLS began tracking weekly hours in 1964. And this right here, we are at rock bottom so far. And folks, we say this a lot, that you folks out there are living this recession. It really is your recession. And you've been writing to us on the blog and telling us on the podcast for months now about your hours being cut. You're talking to us about furloughs and going part-time. And sometimes you folks out there are ahead of the statisticians. I talked to economist Howard Rosen about this just this morning, and he says, yes, absolutely, the Planet Money crowd saw this coming. You were the first one to document, you know, job sharing and furloughs, and there it is. It's now being represented in the numbers. It's a change not just in terms of the number, but it's also a change in terms of the nature of our work. You know, people were working overtime and all that kind of thing, and now they're not. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's how they make ends meet is through their overtime. I love that the Planet Money people beat the statisticians. That's Isn't awesome. that cool? <laughs> okay, so maybe one day you all can help us document some bright side of life instead of all... This bad news all the time when we get a real recovery. And meanwhile, let's all try to remember that economics also has its fun side. And one of the fun things for us about economics is that it can really help you unlock the puzzles of ordinary life. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, learning more and more about economics. There's all these, you know, small day-to-day questions that economics offers some insight to, like, why is there a light in the refrigerator but not a light in the freezer? Yeah, and what has that got to do with my diet? That's what I want to know. That question appears in economist Robert Frank's book, The Economic Naturalist. He talks a lot about mysteries like that. He runs a whole class in Cornell where they basically try to take apart everyday mysteries. I asked Robert Frank if he'd help us with a riddle sent in by a listener. The listener lives in Israel and works for a college that trains school teachers. Okay, here's the riddle. You ready? Yep. The colleges, they train teachers, and their tuition is set by the government. So the listener says the colleges, they have to compete for students, but they can't do it by offering lower tuition. So the way that they make a better deal for students is that they lower the standards. Which is to say they make the classes easier, they assign fewer papers, they assign fewer hours of student teaching, which is where the novice has to go in and try to run the class. I always used to love that day in school. And the end result 
can be that you get teachers who aren't as well trained as as they should be because they got this sort of bargain education. The listener in Israel wanted to know what an economist would call this problem and how it could be solved. Here's Robert Frank. Well, I guess most generally it's a problem of imperfect information and and more particularly asymmetric information. So the the people who are hiring teachers know less about how they were trained than the people who trained them. So Hana, if an elementary school knew that its new kindergarten teacher came from a college that had cut corners, then maybe the hiring committee would pick another candidate. Yeah, but the way that the system works right now is that the hiring committee, they can't necessarily know who got good training and who didn't. It's not, you know, written on their resume or something. So one way to solve that problem of asymmetric information would be to figure out just how well the teachers do in real classrooms, put them in a real classroom, see how they do. Um, but setting up an objective criteria for that, Robert Frank says, it's not that easy. Can we actually say who's an effective teacher and who isn't? I mean, everybody has intuition about that, but uh, it's, uh, I don't know if we have really reliable instruments that can measure that on a mass scale. Because maybe they would do well on a licensing test or something like that, but it doesn't make them a good classroom teacher. That's right. Yeah, the problem is when you when you give tests to assess how well programs are doing, then people spend all their time and energy preparing for the tests, which if they measured exactly what you cared about would be fine, but often the the thing you're you're measuring is only vaguely related to the thing you really care about. It seems like this is the kind of thing that, in a long picture view, the market might have a chance of working out if teachers are rewarded according to their proficiency in the classroom. And they might look around and say, oh, the students from here did better. And then that school would start to get a reputation as the place to go. That's right. So if some programs really are better than others, and if you can tell who's good and who's bad once people are on the ground doing the job, then I think the market can sort this out. Yeah, those those are two big ifs. Uh, oftentimes, each one of those steps is difficult. It sounds like there's a high level of they're just going to have to lump it in this one. <laughs> you know, I think there there's uh, a, a clear tendency for people to compete on on the the easy dimensions. I thought I know we see it in MBA instruction, you know, the the MBA ratings that uh services like Business Week bestow on programs depend to an enormous extent on how happy the students are in the programs. They survey the the students and get them to rate their own programs if you can imagine. And so uh there's an enormous premium nowadays among MBA programs to make sure the students are happy. And it's not exactly the same thing to to make sure a student is happy and to make sure a student is well-trained. Sometimes uh, the things you need to do in order to get well-trained don't make you happier. And, Hannah, let's just look at how happy all those MBAs made the economy, you know? Ooh. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> okay. So, but here's the thing, Laura. So you and Frank are saying it, it's hard to figure out who's a good teacher. It's just a hard thing to measure. Um, but I'm going to take you to task there. So our new education secretary, Arnie Duncan, just the other day, he was telling 10,000 teachers in San Diego that we need to do exactly that. This was the National Education Association Conference. And he said to all these teachers, we need to figure out a way to pay you for being good teachers 
and to pay you less for being bad teachers. Ooh, sounds like picking a fight. Yeah, so this is a really contentious issue within education. Um, and it's also really interesting because it gets at this bigger question that, you know, we at Planet Money are wanting to look into a lot more is just compensation in general. What determines what I get paid and you get paid and your mom gets paid? Lay off my mom, Hannah. You know, my, my mom actually is a school teacher in a poor state, you know. So she's oh, really? not making now she's not making that much. She teaches public school in Mississippi. Okay. So let's talk about how your mom does get paid right now. So, you know, because we value schools and public education, we think every child should have access to them. So we need a bunch of teachers and we need to pay them. And we, the way that we do it now is we look at teachers and we say, you all do the same job. Every single one of you is going to be put on this pay scale, this salary schedule. And it's a graph. It's got rows and there are rows for experience and for degrees. I talked this through with an economist, Michael Podgorski, at the University of Missouri, and he told me almost every public school teacher in the country gets paid by these two metrics, experience and degrees. So everyone is marching along that same salary schedule, whether they're a first grade teacher or a high school chemistry teacher, and, you know, whether they're in a low-performing school that's, you know, tough or a, a really nice school. Or whether they're a really good teacher, very effective, or less effective. So if I'm a teacher and I want to increase my pay, I need to either get more training or I need to just wait out 30 years until I can start making more and more the longer I'm there. That's right. If you want to make more money, you either get older or you get more um, degrees, or you become an administrator. But you're not going to make more money staying in the classroom. So, Laura, you may be able to sense in his voice this is a system that makes Podgorski and many, many other economists crazy. He gets so riled up talking about it that he even uses a bad word, sort of. Well, he thinks it's a bad word. I think most economists who look at and sit down and think about it and look at the single salary schedule would, would say, boy, this is this is really inefficient. <laughs> you know, we that's the strongest thing an economist can say. This is really inefficient. Caitlin Kenny out there directing our podcast. I think we need to go back and, and bleep the word inefficient. <laughs> I know he says it like it's gonna really drop a bomb. Inefficiency in the public school system. So he you know, and he is looking at this as an economist and he looks at the typical problems that most schools face, problems, you know, like Good teachers often leave the profession early, earlier than we would like them to, and some not-so-good teachers, they stick around a little bit too long. Um, and some schools are more difficult than others, so it's hard to get people to work in those schools and to stay, and it's hard to find science and math teachers and special ed teachers. And by paying everyone the same, Podgorski says you're not recognizing these facts. You're ignoring that all of these things are realities. So Podgorski works at a university, right? So he would say, it makes no sense for the university president to say, okay, you're all professors. You're all going to get paid the same. These finance professors make more than the economics professors on average, and the uh, economics professors make more than the history professors. So that's what we mean by market-based. So if, if uh, the history department wants to go out and hire a historian, a, a new, say, young PhD, they'll pay the market rate. You know, if an economist 
in my department. I was chair for 10 years. If someone got an offer from another university and we want to keep that person, would match it. Most organizations would if you want to keep them. See, schools don't do this. We, we sort of look at a school district and say, well, they're all teachers. But the reality is the, the training that goes into you know, a, a chemistry teacher is very different than the training that goes into a, um, uh, an, an elementary school teacher. And their working conditions are very different. But most important of all, on average, their non-teaching opportunities differ. So what Pakersky's talking about here, Hannah, is that the chemistry teacher could also work as a lab tech or maybe work in biotech or pharmaceuticals or something like that and maybe get paid a lot more. So you want to encourage that person to stay put in the schools instead. Right. And what ends up happening is that it's really hard to find a high school science teacher. So you end up with someone who's underqualified, who maybe didn't major in chemistry or doesn't have the right license to teach that subject. Um or, you know, you'll end up with a teacher certified in biology teaching a calculus class. And, you know, of course, the students all suffer from that. Yeah. In my school, Hannah, we had football coaches who would teach science. And I don't mean to say football coaches of the world before you write in that that is necessarily a bad thing, because maybe some of you learned a lot of science or majored in science or got master's degrees in science while you were also learning to be football coaches. But in our case, it really seemed like the, the guy had read the textbook the night before and came in and told us what was in it. Right. And if you go to, you know, a lousy school and the teachers are leaving all the time or if you love calculus and the school doesn't have a good teacher and instead, you know, a not so great teacher who's been there for years and years and years, you know, won't leave. These are obviously problems. Yeah. They, I mean, clearly they're problems. But let's say we are going to pay chemistry teachers more and let's say we are going to pay teachers based on performance so effective teachers get more. How in the Sam Hill are we actually going to determine effective teaching? I mean, that gets to be kind of a difficult, sticky question. And I'll tell you, I mean, my mom is living this all the time. It's like she works in a school district where nobody's test scores look particularly good. So it isn't like you can say, oh, this many first students are coming up to literacy. They're not. And yet that's how schools right now are measured really is through test scores. That's always where the debate ends up focusing around is, is how are you going to measure which teachers are good and which teachers aren't good? And is it going to be based on how their students do, how their students perform on tests or grades or something like that? And teachers unions really hate that idea. They say, you know, you don't really want students sitting down at a test and determining how much their teachers get paid. And Pagursky says, just just forget them. No, I mean, Pagursky doesn't really care how exactly this happens in individual districts, just that they do think about the way that they're going to pay their teachers and that it does have something to do with their performance. So he says, you know, you can design a bad compensation system and basing, you know, pay only on test scores that could be bad. A reasonable package, it seems to me, would include classroom evaluations, um, supervisor evaluations, you know, uh, uh, potentially evaluations of peers, data on student uh, performance, student attendance. So, so all of these could play a role. Schools will have to experiment, but, but you know, it, it, this gets done, you know, in, in lots of other environments. You have evaluation systems that have multiple components in them. That's the way most of the rest of the world works. <laughs> I'm sure it even happens at NPR. Laura, you got a big secret bonus last year, didn't you? Yes, it was really big and not so secret now. <laughs> 
I mean, this is the thing is actually, you know, this isn't really how NPR works. NPR is a lot more like public school teachers rather than getting paid for performance. Um, and actually, I talked to these two other economists this morning who wrote a paper about merit pay. And basically, they say this idea that this is how the rest of the world works. Well, you know, pay for performance does happen in the private sector a lot and in nonprofits, too. But it's not as often as people who love merit pay for teachers would like to believe. You get people who get commissions, so like real estate and sales and people in the financial sector. Sure, they often get pay for performance directly tied to something that they're doing. But a lot of workplaces don't do that. So, you know, of course, this Laura has now made me really interested in spending more time figuring out, you know, how other places determine how to pay their people. Yeah, this is a thing that we want to keep on, this question of how should people get paid? I mean, we see bank presidents getting so many millions and people who work just as hard at a far distant pole of the economy making a lot less. And we want to know from you, first of all, how does compensation work at your workplace? And also, if you could just imagine for us that you are the boss of your workplace, how would you choose to pay everyone? What kinds of incentives would you have in place to keep everyone coming to work and happy? But be realistic, folks. You have limited resources. You've got to keep the place running. Yeah, but sort of get you get to fantasize. If you're the boss, like if you work at a restaurant, you have servers and you have a host and a manager and chef and line cooks and, you know, how would you as the boss decide how to divide up the pay? Should it be exactly even or, you know, maybe it should change every pay period based on your subjective assessment of everyone's performance or, you know, maybe you'll just pay people based on your experience and how much in tips you bring in. Which would make the line cooks pretty sad. Right. So, you know, I actually like this idea that you get all the employees together. Like, what if we got everyone in the Planet Money team together and we all just anonymously wrote down what we think <laughs> everyone else should get paid and then just determine it that way? Yeah, Hannah, let's do that. I, th- I think that we have to somehow get along well enough to get out of the rest of this week. That's what I'm saying. But I'll get you good pay, Lara. You, you get me, I'll get you. Ooh, a secondary market. I like it, Hannah. Okay, folks out there, tell us, what's your dream of the best way to run your office with money? Planet Money at NPR.org. Send it to us. Write it up. Planetmoney at NPR.org. And we'll be back at this soon. All right. There we are. And we will also link to Robert Frank's new book, The Economic Naturalist Field Guide. It'll be on our blog, NPR.org slash money. We'd love to hear your economic riddles. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks so much for listening. 